to welcome a dedicated audience here this evening. Uh, my name is Michael Anderson. I am the Chief Executive Officer of a philanthropy called the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, um, which is a philanthropy dedicated to promoting the well-being of children, largely in low-income countries. Um, I have to declare an interest. In a previous life, I used to be an LSC academic teaching in this building. I used to teach a course on uh, human rights and strategic impact litigation. Um, so it is slightly daunting to be back in this venue where the custom uh, associated with uh, kind of last-minute lecture notes. It's my great relief that this evening there's a group of people who are highly authoritative who are going to speak, and I don't have to. Um, I did have a role before I joined SIF as Prime Minister Cameron's special envoy on UN development goals, and I was previously Director General in DFID. Um, so have a long-standing interest in HIV-AIDS. So I'd like to thank you for coming to what promises to be a debate. It's structured as three lectures, but um, I think lecture is not the spirit. We want to have some dynamism and, and debate about a, the influence of a movement which um, has been just remarkable um, over several decades. Um, the global CSO NGO movement around HIV-AIDS, which is historically going to stand as one of the um, monuments to collective action in, uh, in our lives. And this is a chance to stop, take stock of what's happened um, and where the movement is and where it's going ahead. And to remember that AIDS remains one of the biggest global challenges we face in the world today. Um, in 2013, there were 1.5 million AIDS-related deaths, which is a very, very huge challenge for humanity. Of the 35 million people living with HIV, 22 million are still not getting treatment. There's an enormous myth out there that people with HIV are, are on treatment, and that is just not the case. And we know that drugs can save lives and help people lead healthy and long lives. And every year there's progress with fewer new infections and fewer deaths. And we know that civil society organizations have been absolutely central to driving that change. But we also know that that change is not by any means complete. And one of the things to engage with and challenge is how does this movement, which has been so successful for, for so long, how does it continue to mobilize effectively to meet the, the challenges ahead? Um, there's also an issue in this debate about how do we understand the impact. Um, I come from a background that is mainly legal, but I have a, a real strong interest in evaluation and measuring the impact of uh, interventions. And there's a really interesting question here about what has been the impact of this whole movement? And are we able to describe and understand the lessons, um, but also to understand the total impact of this movement. I think that's something that the uh, methodology folks here at LSE are on the cutting edge on. So enough of me. Let me go on to introduce the panel. And I'll, I'll introduce the panel first, uh, and then we'll, we'll start with um, the speakers. So starting with the last speaker first, Dr. Flora Cornish, 
is Associate Professor in Qualitative Research Methodology at the LSE, um, and therefore our host this evening. Um, next to Flora is Sisonke Misimang, who works for the Sonke Gender Justice in South Africa. And Sisonke is quite famous as an activist, um, and, um, and I think I first read Sisonke's things, gosh, some time ago, and um, it's weird very fortunate to have her here as someone who's um, worked on this topic for over 20 years with a focus on good governance, democracy, gender, and AIDS. And our first speaker is uh, Mark Haywood, Executive Director of Section 27 in South Africa. Mark was one of the founders of the Treatment Action Campaign, and Mark has also written extensively on HIV, human rights, and the law. I have a confession, which is when I used to teach in this building, I used to teach the cases, the judgments that Mark had litigated, so it's a real pleasure to have him here. Um, and I, those, though a lot of those judgments inspired generations of students coming to this building, I think still do. So I think one of the questions for us this evening is how do we capture that inspiration um, and make sure we make it relevant for future generations. So Mark... You have 15 minutes. Can I ask you to take the podium first and then um, give us some fairly controversial um, insights, and then we'll follow that up with some more. There will be time later on for wider discussion. Mark, please. Uh, good evening, everybody. And first of all, thank you uh, very much for the opportunity to speak here this evening. Thank you to the Alliance for the opportunity to write the chapter in uh, publication. Uh, I must say, when Sisonke first approached me and asked me to write, uh, it was in the middle of the multiple crises that we deal with in South Africa on a day-to-day -day basis. But uh, I immediately saw an opportunity, because I wrote back to Sisonke and I said, will you let me write what I really want to write? And she said, yes. And so... I was given the opportunity to say publicly in this book what has been troubling me as an activist privately for quite a long time and hopefully to begin to shape a new debate about both the past but also the future of the AIDS response and hopefully to make it possible to rescue the response to HIV from growing danger and from growing collapse. And as I said, I've had this unsettling feeling for quite a long time. In fact, the first time that it really hit me was at one of the International AIDS Conferences. And the International AIDS Conferences, at one point in the history of the AIDS movement, they played a very positive role as a place where activists could come together, could meet each other, could strategize, could protest, could network, could build a global movement. But as the years went by, the international AIDS conferences were co-opted and increasingly became an industry where people went for their per diems and where people went for the opportunity to go to Washington or the opportunity to go to Melbourne and so on. The last international AIDS conference that I went to was in Vienna in 2010. And at that international AIDS conference in Vienna in 2010, something took place which in some ways should have been a mark of victory, of the achievements of the AIDS movement. For me, it felt like the death of the AIDS movement. 
And that was a staged human rights march through the streets of Vienna. And it felt so tame, so much like theatre, so superficial, so hollow, that it made me think this really is the beginning of the end. Because unlike the demonstration that had taken place a decade before that, at the International AIDS Conference in Durban, it didn't have an agenda. It didn't have a clear set of demands. It didn't aim properly to reshape the HIV epidemic. It was just about protest and just about demonstration. Since that point in 2010, I would argue that we have seen the gradual deflating of the global activist response to HIV. And it was that, if you like, putting of the pin in a balloon that we all played a part in blowing up and its slow fizzling out that I decided to try to get my head round when I was asked to write this chapter. So let me just say a little bit about what this chapter is, is about. It was originally called uh, The Rise and Fall of the Human Rights Response to HIV. And I think what is so important about the response to HIV was the way in which activists from the very beginning redefined HIV as not a public health issue, not a disease issue, but a human rights issue where people affected and people infected had rights to dignity, had rights to treatment, had rights to confidentiality. And it was the voices of the people, not the academics, not the theoreticians, that brought the theoreticians to the table, the Jonathan Manns and people, and made them rethink about how do you respond to a disease threat such as, such as HIV. I think there's lessons we can learn even today as we look at Ebola, because Ebola is being described as a global threat to peace and security. That is the narrative. It's not being described today as an issue about the human rights of people who are vulnerable to, 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 to Ebola within West Africa. It's not being described as the consequences of a violation of socio-economic rights and the steady watching of collapse of healthcare systems within, within West Africa. It's not being described as something that is spreading rapidly through communities because of lack of water, because of lack of hygiene, because of lack of housing, because of overcrowding. And we have to take from HIV, not just the human rights approach that we fought for with HIV, but we have to take that approach and we have to take that approach and we have to transplant it in relation to health and to new challenges to health generally. But what my chapter tries to do is to document how the human rights response rose, what arose, what were the achievements of the human rights response, but also how the driver of the human rights response to HIV, and in fact the driver of the response to HIV at all points, was civil society. Let no government, let no politician ever claim responsibility for the marvellous 
results in the response to HIV. It was people with HIV, it was civil society organizations that put it on the agenda, that demanded urgency, that demanded agency, and which demanded action. And the beauty of this movement was that at one point, possibly for the first, well certainly for the first time in the 21st century, possibly for one of the only times in the 20th century, we created a truly global movement of citizens. A truly global movement that stretched from China to South Africa to the United States to Australia to Rwanda to Botswana, all with a common vision. A human rights vision that said people have a right of access to treatment, people have a right to the benefits of science and, science and technology. It was a movement in many respects like the anti-apartheid movement. But it was also a movement that wasn't easy to build, but it was a movement that achieved remarkable victories. The title of this book is Tell No Lies, Claim No Easy Victories. The victories of the AIDS movement were not easy. Those of us who've been with this movement for many years recall the battles, recall the stigma, recall the deaths of friends and of comrades, recall being isolated and alienated in countries like South Africa where we were accused of being pharmaceutical company agents and against the African National Congress and unpatriotic, etc., etc. But persistence and a belief in human rights and vision and confidence in people achieved global breakthroughs. In my country, in South Africa, we were able to overcome AIDS denialism. We started the treatment action campaign with 10 people literally demonstrating on the steps of a church. At its height, we built a movement of 30,000 people. We started a movement where nobody lived with HIV and everybody died of AIDS, at least if they were poor and if they were black and if they were a woman. Today, in South Africa, we have two and a half million people who are on antiretroviral treatment. Life expectancy in South Africa has risen from the low points of 48 or 49 back up to 60. Ten years ago in South Africa, the risk of a mother ch transmitting HIV to her child, a mother with HIV, was 30%. Today that risk has been cut down to 2.7% postpartum. The movement around HIV has demonstrated people's power to effect a revolution in the way that we respond to health. But having said that, what I want to go on to say is that I do not feel that we should be complacent. I do not feel that we should think that this is a victory. I do not feel that we should talk about the end of AIDS. Because HIV is about a virus, yes. But HIV is also about the syndrome of social conditions that facilitates the transmission of the virus, about the gender inequalities, about the criminalization of populations and of marginalized people. So when people talk about the end of AIDS, as if we're going to bring about the end of AIDS through the very antiretrovirals that we fought for, my feeling is that it is short-sighted misleading and confusing in the extreme. Because the response to HIV has a great deal of unfinished business about it. There is the unfinished business of gender inequality. 
I do not believe, and I'd be interested to hear Sasonke, whether she agrees with me on this, that despite what we know about women's vulnerability, that actually we've made any progress, real progress, in the equality of poor women, in the equality of vulnerable women, against scourges like gender-based violence and against, uh, against rape. We can't talk about the end of AIDS while we haven't made progress on those fronts. So there's unfinished business that we have to deal with in HIV, but there are also new frontiers. The struggle around HIV became a struggle for democratic government. It became a struggle for democratic healthcare systems. So today in South Africa, although we have two and a half million people on antiretroviral treatment, we're having to fight the collapse, the collapse, the neglect of healthcare systems because you cannot sustain a response to HIV on a poor people's public healthcare system. So HIV today forces us to address the health system, not in abstract, not as health system specialists and blah, 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 but in concrete terms of what do you require to hold up a health system. But that requires you to confront corrupt politicians. In this province, if you see this t-shirt I'm wearing, it says something about dealing with the health crisis in the free state. Corrupt politicians preside over the healthcare system and steal out of the health system. AIDS activism today in that particular province means dealing with death threats from politicians who feel that if they are exposed for the money and the stealing that they are, they are involved in, that it will take them away from the trough that they have been accustomed to having access to. So we can claim no easy victories, but we must also tell no lies, as, this, as, as the theme has been said here. My fear, and I'll finish with these points, is that if the motor of progress for the response to HIV has been civil society, the fan belt of that motor is broken. And if the civil society response cannot be sustained, then the danger is that the exceptional response that we have created to HIV will be de-exceptionalized and will be normalized to the level of the responses that exist to many developing country diseases such as tuberculosis. And therefore, what I would beg us to do, what I would beg us to do as civil society, is to introspect a little bit about not only what we did right, but in particular about what we did wrong. And it's that that I try to do in this article. And I would say two things in particular. The first thing I would say is that the AIDS movement didn't find its natural allies. I think that the AIDS movement should have moved more quickly to link itself up with campaigns for social justice in the world with other struggles of poor people for food, for gender equality, etc., because that is the natural ally of the, of the AIDS movement. Instead, because we were successful at banging on doors, people opened the doors to us and they co-opted us and they drew us into processes and institutions in which we wasted enormous amounts of time. I can tell you from my own personal experience, I became 
for five years the deputy chairperson of the South African National AIDS Council. I sat next to the deputy president of the country. I was made to feel very important, very powerful. But certainly in the last three years of being that deputy chairperson, I had to question, what are we achieving? And whilst you cannot dispense with negotiation and participation in process, it must always be answerable to the people on the ground who are continuing to die of HIV and AIDS and to utilize dysfunctional health systems on a daily basis. So we have to look for new allies. And the second point that I would make is that I don't think that we, th we thought about the sustainability of the movement that we were creating. I think that we became drunk with, not drunk with success, but drunk with the sense of this rising movement that had a vision, that had an idea, that was gathering people around it all of, all of the time. We didn't think that once we had won the battle for access to antiretroviral treatment, how would we sustain that battle? for another 10 or 15 years? How would we democratize healthcare systems and so on and so on? And I think those are the questions which we have to confront ourselves with, with today. And the final thing that I would say, and this is the point on which I will conclude my comments, is that we didn't think about the sustainability of social justice movements like the Treatment Action Campaign and civil society organizations. And we benefited enormously from donors who played an incredible role in helping to blow up this movement and to build this movement at a time when the donor community globally was concerned with HIV. But we didn't think about the inevitable day when the donor community would do what donor communities do, which is move on to what is considered to be the next topical, sexy, important, or what other issue, without actually securing and shoring up the fundamental change that the response to, to, to HIV requires. So I want to say that in some ways, the donor trap that many of us fell into was both a blessing for a period of time, but also became a curse. And I think the issue of donor behavior is something that we need to look very critically at. Not just critically as in it's their fault and not our fault. We need to look at the issue together. What was expected of us? What could be expected of us? What was expected of them? But I do believe that when it comes to social movements at least, which are not traditional non-governmental organizations, social movements are revolutionary movements, I'm afraid to say, very frequently. That traditional donor paradigms will not serve the sustainability of those movements. Which brings me to my concluding points. As I stand here before you today, the treatment action campaign, uh, in the words of a colleague I was with earlier on today, confronts a fiscal cliff. The treatment action campaign, which has contributed to saving two and a half million lives in South Africa, not alone, but which has been a catalyst, faces very severe financial constraints in 2015, 2016, which if those financial constraints are not overcome, in my view, will require a very serious discussion about the future sustainability of that movement. 
Because I don't think that you can downscale a social movement. I don't think you can downscale a movement like the TAC when there are two and a half million people on treatment who need their access to medicines through clinics, through hospitals, guarded through a loud and a vocal movement. I don't think you can downscale at this point in the epidemic when there are still another two and a half million people who need to go onto treatment and when there are a whole new set of challenges which were not challenges that we faced in the middle of the 1990s and in the middle of the, of, of, of the 2000s. But social movements are messy movements. Social movements of poor people, of disadvantaged people, of people who have been deprived quality education in South Africa because of the history and the legacy of apartheid, are messy movements. They don't fit easily within straitjackets. They don't perform in the way that professional donor organizations sometimes expect those movements to perform. And yet, those are the movements that are rooted in the communities where HIV lives. And yet, those are the people who can speak to other people about the risks of HIV in a language which makes sense, in a culture that doesn't jar, in a manner that is non-patronizing. So I want to conclude by saying that I would hazard to say that if we cannot sustain this movement, the response to HIV in South Africa will collapse within half a decade if an organization like the Treatment Action Campaign is not able to sustain itself. The response to HIV in South Africa will collapse within half a decade. I don't have the time to justify why I make that statement, but I challenge you to hold me to that statement to see whether it is true or whether it is not true. I would hazard to say that the funding of organizations like the Treatment Action Campaign is, a much, is as much an issue for the global AIDS movement as, for example, issues around intellectual property or the price of medicines because the existence of these organizations is a key to access or a barrier to access as much as price and affordability may be a key and a barrier to access. And I want to finish by saying I won't abuse my position here today, but on the 1st of November uh, this year, between the 1st of November and the 1st of December, World AIDS Day this year, we will launch a global fundraising campaign where we will try to demonstrate that ordinary people are still prepared to show solidarity and invest in other ordinary people who are engaged in a life and death struggle for other ordinary people who are at risk of HIV. And we will culminate that, that one month. We will start that one month with the Soweto Marathon on the 2nd of November when people with HIV will run in the marathon to show that we're healthy and that we're strong and so on. We will conclude it on the 1st of December when we will hold a 10-year activist reunion of the class of 2000 to 2004 to put all people back into the room again, to look at what we did, to remember the people who died in the years of those struggle, to put an Edwin Cameron together with a doctor, together with a journalist, together with an activist, but I think most importantly, to galvanize South African civil society for the next phase of the response to HIV, TB, 
and the human right of access to healthcare services. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. That raised a whole series of questions in my mind, as I'm sure it did in others in the audience, but I think uh, probably best to have all three presentations. So, Sasonke, can I ask you to address this as well? And then we'll come back to questions at the end. Hi, everyone. So I had a different title to my uh, uh, talk, and I've changed it as Mark was speaking, and it's basically called What He Said. (laughs) So I'm done. So I had the privilege of being asked by the International AIDS Alliance to be the guest editor or the first editor of what we hope will become uh, every two years a kind of status update on where civil society is in dealing with the response to HIV. So in many ways, I was the guinea pig, and they were my guinea pig, um, as were the authors. Um, so I wanted to say a little bit about um, what the thinking was initially behind this report, and I think where we ended up taking this um, series of essays. So it was originally supposed to be um, a report, a kind of pulse check on where the state of the epidemic, a sort of shadow report to what UNAIDS uh, puts out every year, right? So you look at the epi stuff and you say, so what does this mean about how civil society organizations are responding to these statistics? And very clearly, very quickly it became clear to me that that wasn't going to cut it. It wasn't where my head or my heart were at, and it didn't seem to me to be a particularly useful thing. And so in conversation um, with colleagues at the Alliance and with a lot of partners, the, the project began to evolve. And so I'll talk about what that evolution was and what that particular moment um, was. So in part, um, what was happening in my own life was this evolution from being um, an activist on gender, and HIV and human rights and democracy issues, someone, I would say, deeply embedded, to use a loaded term, um, as people have come to call journalists in um, the Middle East, deeply embedded in development, yeah? Um, To someone who felt increasingly outside of development and the need to not be so embedded in the mainstream discourse of the (coughs) development Um, industry. Um, So I was moving from an activist to being a communicator. And it seemed clear to me that a lot of the conversations that we had in development in NGOEs were conversations with ourselves, that they were internally focused, narrowly focused, very inaccessible, and therefore, even though they were rich with content, were actually increasingly devoid of meaning. And so it seemed to me that we needed to think a little bit differently about how we spoke and who we spoke to and what were our reasons for speaking. And so that informed a lot of the thinking about um, this report. So it started 18 months ago, this strategizing about this this report and what we were going to put into it and what we were going to say. And one of the things that happened was that there was this spectacular headline that The Economist put out uh, in 2013 that said, um, 
the end of AIDS. So the economist declared, despite the statistics that we've heard, that AIDS was over. And part of what was driving the end of AIDS was these fantastic scientific breakthroughs that everyone has been talking about. And it seemed interesting to me that people who were not in the NGO HIV world were talking about victory and success because we had been spectacularly good cheerleaders. And that worried me. And so I cast my mind back to one of my first things that I ever did as an activist. It was 1999, and um, some young people were wanting to have a few more conversations about the impact of HIV on women, and young women in particular. So what was happening to my cohort of young women in Southern Africa um, in 1999, and so we cobbled together some money and we brought together young women to have a discussion. And in the, those of you who know anything about African societies will know that we don't always address something straight. So you have to talk about things before you get to the main thing, because otherwise no one will talk about it, so it can't be too obvious. And so one of the things we talked around to begin to talk about HIV and how, and so the, the meeting was primarily women living with HIV. And so one of the things we did was we had this conversation about life. And we asked, um, draw a picture of your life. And so everyone had these fantastic, wonderful pictures of the trees and this is the roots and this is how it came and so on. And we said, in that picture, put HIV somewhere. And so as people debriefed and unpacked that story of where HIV fit into their life. Um, it was a, a fascinating and heartbreaking but really important moment for me as an activist as, and as someone who has um, continued to work on these issues. So what happened was there was an arc. There was a story arc. Um, in everyone's life, HIV had actually entered the scene very, very early. It wasn't named HIV at the time, but it was sexual abuse. Yeah? So it wasn't as though women were getting infected necessarily through that sexual abuse, but it triggered a whole range of other things in young women's lives that then led them to a place where HIV came into their lives. And it was also really interesting that everyone felt compelled to talk about how they had overcome all of these obstacles in their lives and were now transformed and playing these positive roles in their communities. And that wasn't actually true. So part of what happens with the AIDS industry and with development is that we feel compelled to tell these stories about how great everything is. So there has to be a particular story arc. I was bedraggled and my life was horrible. I got HIV. I saw the light. I became someone different. And now I'm helping everyone in my community. That's not an authentic telling of what actually happens in people's lives, anyone's, middle class people, let alone poor people in extremely difficult situations, right? Who continue to have unprotected sex for all kinds of reasons, right? Who continue sometimes to not be the greatest role models and sometimes to be that, right? But it was a very uncomplicated picture. And so it seemed to me, fast forward to The Economist, The End of AIDS, it seemed to me that what was happening was that the develop in development industry had 
too good of a story to tell, right? And that UNAIDS, our fearless bureaucratic leader, had done such a good story, a job of telling these wonderful stories every year in the UNAIDS report that says, look how much we've done, look how much we've succeeded, that the mainstream press and the narrative even amongst ourselves was beginning to be that we have won. And the statistics simply don't bear this out, right? The facts are different from that good story. And we understand that the reason for the good story is because donors need it, people want to feel energized and feel inspired, and so that leads us to have a very simplistic, uncomplicated, inauthentic, not always true story, which is helpful to nobody living with HIV, nor is it helpful to those of us who want to fight the epidemic. So a, a key reason for us to rethink what was the purpose of this report was that the good news story has been too good. So good that it actually isn't um, as realistic as we, as we know it is. The second reason we wanted to do this report is because the reality is that funds are drying up, in part because and so the good news story is being told so that we inspire donors to give a little bit more money, one big last push, so that we can really eliminate the virus. And we know that the structural causes for HIV remain deeply embedded in communities. So we will continue to need significant amounts of money for the foreseeable future, and nobody wants to hear that. Western publics don't want to hear that because it's your taxes, you're tired of that story, the forever you know, begging um, you know, African continent, right? It's not a fun, easy, nice, palatable story. So it needs to be massaged in certain ways. So we need to deal with that, and I, I want to talk about that a little bit. But the reality is that means that funds have begun to dry up for an AIDS response that at one moment was very sexy. The scientific breakthroughs. Right? So suddenly there was all this amazing new science that was coming and so treatment was getting better and more, um, uh, more efficacy in our programs and so there were some fantastic breakthroughs, right? And so because of the science, there was a, um, a tendency to talk about the AIDS response as though we had solved the problem, that technology was going to solve this problem. At the same time, there was increased prevalence in countries where we thought we had won. So Uganda, suddenly, we begin to see a spike up. <laughs> and that's deeply worrisome. In populations of men who have sex with men where we thought, wow, we've won the fight. Australia, look, a spike up, right? In a developed country context, what's happening, right? And so there was all this information emerging that said this is a complicated, complex story and having a report that's about statistics and jargon and continuing to talk to ourselves is not going to cut it. And so we need to slash a lot of the jargon and slash the statistics and bring the conversation. Any one of you who has ever worked for an institution or who goes to a university like this will know that the most interesting conversations that happen are always the ones that are in the hallway. And then when you get into the meeting, and so everyone says, so what's on the agenda? Nobody puts the real issues on the agenda. And all the things you were whispering about outside, you can't put on the table. So we wanted to have that conversation about the things that we always whisper about, the conversations that activists were having amongst themselves about things that we were deeply concerned about in terms of the AIDS narrative that weren't getting put into the mainstream conversation. And so in many ways, that's what this uh, report is seeking to do, is to have that honest conversation and say, we are very worried with this narrative of triumph that has happened 
to some extent in the AIDS industry, but I think, as I say, it's a broader problem um, of development. And why? I think part of why is, as I said, that people like to win. We like to feel like we're winning even if we're not. It's a depressing story if we're not. And I'm not saying we're not winning, but I am saying that it's much more complicated than, um, than what a lot of the bureaucracies would have us um, believe. But also I think that there is a tendency towards this technical approach and that the more successful we have been in fighting HIV, and so I, the way I describe it is that in the beginning there was politics, and politics was a treatment action campaign. Politics was the conversations that we were having with women that said, what happened? Tell, me, tell us about your life, right? And how <coughs> HIV enters. So HIV is an opportunity to talk about a whole range of things that are about power and sex and resources and money, right? So in the beginning there was politics, and then we won for a moment. And then there was a technical response, a very technocratical, technocratic solutions-oriented response, which was appropriate for the moment, but which completely obliterated politics. And so we swung to the other end of the continuum, right? And so I think the message of this report, and the message I think that many activists um, are thinking through in lots of different contexts and all around the world is, how do we make sure that the that the emphasis on the technical and on solutions and on science is not devoid of politics. How do we recognize that that science would not have happened, those breakthroughs would not have happened had it not been for people screaming and chanting and saying, you will prioritize poor people who live in third world countries, right? That our lives mean as much as the lives of anybody else, regardless of what they look. That the, that the technical stuff has only happened as a result of the politics. And so in many ways, this report is a call for both technical solutions, but for a reintroduction of politics back into, into, um, into the response. Um, so it's not a sexy thing to say um, context matters, to say go back to participation. It's not sexy to say there aren't three snap your fingers responses, which we know donors like, but I think, as I said, which... Western publics have an appetite for. Um, it's a long, convoluted, complicated road, but if we don't deal with the structural issues that underlie HIV, that underlie Ebola, that underlie all of these things that are just symptoms, then I think we, we aren't doing justice to the many people around the world to continue to live and struggle with HIV every day. I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Sasonke. Um, I like the title, the revised title of your talk. What do you say? <laughs> Flora. Thank you. Well, I'm here today in the role of academic social scientist with a brief to talk about evidence. What works in civil society's response to HIV AIDS? What is civil society contributing to tackling HIV-AIDS and what evidence is there for the efficacy of community mobilization? You might have heard the apocryphal story about US President Harry Truman's demand for a one-armed economist. He complained that whenever he got advice from economists, they would say, on one hand this, but on the other hand. Okay, so I'm not going to play the role of the one-armed economist who gives simple answers. 
On the contrary, I'm going to argue that the aspiration of the evidence-based policy movement to make universalizing bottom-line answers about whether this or that intervention works or not is actually unscientific and unhelpful. My perspective here is informed by two pieces of research that I and a group of, group of colleagues here at the LSE have conducted in collaboration with the International HIV AIDS Alliance. The first one sought to provide a reflection on the practices of NGOs um, and to work towards a theory of change regarding community mobilization. So we looked at community mobilization, something that NGOs are often said to do well. And we asked, what does community mobilization really mean? What are organizations and people doing when they say they are doing community mobilization? To answer it, we conducted an interview study um, with um, key informants from 14 countries around the world, um, asking them about what they were doing. And we found that community mobilization is many things. In one Ugandan organization, network support agents are HIV-positive people who visit house-to-house to, house to link other positive people to health services, to act as their advocates in consultations with doctors, and to do follow-up visits to make sure they're continually able to access and use and take their medicines. In Indonesia, an organization supports a football team whose players are people who are homeless and who use drugs, and enables them to take part in the Homeless World Cup. Our key informants there were eloquent and passionate about the necessity of a meaningful life in order to have a reason to protect one's health. And in contrast, in Latin America and the Caribbean, the social movement Red Sex brings sex workers together into a political movement to demand that their human rights are respected. They've gained significant impact and voice um, they, for example, they have representatives on global fund country coordinating mechanisms and are consulted by UN AIDS, national governments, um, and others. But these are three very different processes. Community mobilization is, three, is more than three, hundreds of very different things. But there is something in common. It's by now very well established that HIV is not just a biomedical problem that can be addressed with a technical solution, but that it's a social problem. And in their different ways, each of these organizations builds up social networks that are protective and, where necessary, combative. So community mobilization works by um, rebuilding the kinds of social networks that help people to be healthy or enable them to contest conditions that make them unhealthy. Furthermore, listening to communities, as all of these NGOs did, allowed or indeed forced a responsiveness to local contexts and local needs. Communities made their needs felt and the organizations felt compelled to respond to them. So at the same time as doing this interview research, we also conducted a systematic review of the evidence on community mobilization. And we thought we would try to do our best to come to a definitive statement of the evidence. But, like so many systematic reviews of complex interventions, the findings were inconclusive and patchy. And given what I've just said about the variety of community mobilization, it's perhaps not surprising. So we found it impossible to sum up the literature in one statement. One study found increases in condom use with casual partners, but not with regular partners. Another study found um, uh, re reduction in terms of intimate partner violence, but not reductions in terms of HIV incidence. 
So looking at the studies as a whole, we used language like somewhat consistent and a tendency for positive impact. And although we had to conclude that the evidence for community mobilization in general populations was inconsistent, we were a bit more positive about the evidence for community mobilization for the most at-risk groups, and particularly sex workers. Okay, so why these inconclusive findings? Is it that community mobilization has been shown not to work? We don't think that's where the problem is. Uh, we concluded that the problems are with the evidence and with the effort to synthesize that evidence into simple statements. So, as I've indicated, first of all, when we look at what community mobilization interventions do, it's very various. Um, in the literature that we were reviewing, the implementation of community mobilization took a great many forms. Much literature has been written criticizing community interventions for being tokenistic. And some of those that we reviewed, we had to use keywords. We get in our review what people call their studies in the abstract of the paper. But when you look in detail about what they do, they might use community mobilization to consult with communities or to recruit people to come to interventions. But it's very different to creating a support group, an activist network, um, uh, demanding um, treatment, um, and so on. So often what was being evaluated in these studies was a rather, was a rather weak form of community mobilization. So that's the problem with, sort of with, what, with the, the, the studies that are out there. But secondly, if community mobilization really is a host of different things, perhaps it's not amenable to a simple summary. Should we expect a simple pattern if we saw so many things being described as community mobilization in the study? And so with the drive to evidence-based everything, community mobilization is sometimes written about and evaluated as if it's a technical component that can be shown to work or not. But we think it's not actually one of those things. It's a lot of different things, and in fact its strength is in its adaptability and flexibility. So... At the moment, it seems that development policy lays much hope in the idea that it's possible to identify what works, and these are the technical solutions that Sisonke was talking about, <coughs> and that the emergence of high-quality evidence for biomedical prevention technologies is sometimes spoken of as closing the argument regarding what works. But philosophers and social scientists disagree that evidence is so simple, and I'll give three examples. So philosophers Nancy Cartwright and James Hardy, in their recent book, Evidence-Based Policy, deplore the tendency to assume that because it worked there, it will work here. They argue that recourse to evidence cannot be used as a substitute for the hard thinking through why or why not might it work here, what is needed to make it work here. In another example, Tricia Greenhalgh, who's a professor of primary health care and with colleagues has written a recent essay in the British Medical Journal, disenchanted with what has happened to evidence-based medicine. And they call for what they call real evidence-based medicine. And here they emphasize a number of commitments, among which are a commitment to the ethical treatment of the patient, individualized care, and expert judgment rather than mechanical rule following. And analogies can easily be made to evidence-based policy and practice in relation to community health issues. So the emphasis would be on ethics, local responsiveness, and careful judgment of what might work and how in a given complicated context. 
And finally, um, a final example here comes from the work of anthropologist David Moss, who, through his ethnographic studies of development programs in India, has shown us that successful interventions are not simply discovered. It's not just a discovery that this or that works, but those interventions are made successful through the hard work of people who are implementing those interventions and through careful attention as well to how that work is presented, that it's presented in the right way to, um, to appear successful. So where does this leave us? <clears throat> Taking medicines, attending a clinic, using a condom, demanding treatment, demanding respect of one's rights, these are all social and political processes. A systematic review cannot tell us whether sex workers forming action committees can ensure that local police actually follow the rule of law or that local municipal officials will allow sex workers equal access to welfare rights. This seems to have been a good strategy in parts of India and Latin America, for instance. But in examples in South Africa, according to research by my colleague Cathy Campbell, it proved impossible with groups of sex workers that she worked with to mobilize a sense of collectivity given a desperate competition for custom. And anyway, none of them believed that they had a sense, none of them had a sense of entitlement to state benefits anyway. So in this context, it, 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 was, it, was, um, it was almost impossible. A randomized control trial can tell us that under ideal conditions, pre-exposure prophylaxis can reduce HIV transmission by perhaps up 90%, but not how to achieve those ideal conditions so that people take their medicines consistently, and in practice, pe people don't. So the first point then is that recourse to evidence and evidence synthesis will not make the hard decisions for us as to which intervention to recommend. It depends on a sensitive appraisal of the context. We need horses for courses and evidence in context. And nor will evidence of technology's effectiveness be sufficient to make a difference to the epidemic in the long run. When a technology or intervention gains some evidence of effectiveness, the next question that is often asked is, now how can this be rolled out and scaled up? But technologies are not just rolled out like a carpet unfurled with a flick of the wrist to smoothly cover an affected area with a uniform surface. Technologies can be provided or offered, but then they have to be engaged with, appropriated, demanded, adopted, committed to, and made to work. To make antiretrovirals work, families have to source and cook nourishing food. Counselors have to help people figure out how to fit the medicines into their everyday routines. Community health workers, nurses, and doctors have to be sufficiently motivated and paid to actually turn up to work. Advocates have to keep up the pressure on hospitals and departments of health to make sure that the medicines are actually in stock. Managers have to take responsibility for the reputation of their clinic or hospital for trustworthiness, discretion, and reliability. TV show writers and school teachers have to convey that being HIV positive and taking medicines is not something to be ashamed of or to mock, and so on. So in other words, social interventions do not just work automatically. They have to be made to work. And people have a responsibility for making them work. And so the question we should ask ourselves is not what works, but what are we committed to making work?
Thanks very much, Flora. So um, <clears throat> we have just a little bit over half an hour. I'm going to ask you each one provocative question, and then I'm going to hand over to the audience uh, to open it up for questions, because I think that would be the most useful thing to do. Um, I'm going to start, Mark, with you. You, um, you made a really interesting comment. You said there's a risk that HIV may be de-exceptionalized. And when you said that, it occurred to me, it's just possible there are people in this audience who don't take for granted the kind of exceptionalist argument. And I wondered if this was at the very heart of the kind of coming of air out of the balloon you described, the sense that, you know, the sense that HIV is somehow different is being lost. And I'd like you to recount today, why is it that it is different? For someone who's uninitiated with the argument, what's the argument you make today? Um, about exceptionalism, and how does that respond in particular to the challenges ahead you described? Um, thank you very much. Uh, I, I think what I'd like to say is that in some discussions you hear it said that we need to normalize HIV. In some discussions, you even hear it said that the exceptionalization of HIV, the protection of human rights, contributes to the stigmatization of HIV, which prevents us from being able to respond properly to HIV and discourages testing and discourages disclosure, etc., etc. I don't buy into that <laughs> for obvious reasons. Um, I don't think that HIV is a normal, I mean, I think there are many abnormal causes of illness. I don't think that we should pretend that HIV is a normal cause of illness. I think that people become infected with HIV frequently because they're criminalized, because they're marginalized, because they're denied access to information. I think that even in the era of treatment, that living with HIV changes a person's life profoundly in terms of psychology, in terms of sexual relations, uh, in, terms of of, in terms of the need to, take in, in, to have access to medicines. And I think that people with HIV have a right to ensure that they get the best quality of service at every single possible stage of HIV infection. And therefore, for me, the issue is not that we've exceptionalized HIV to the exclusion of other causes of illness or other causes of disease or other health issues. The issue is that we have to raise the bar for the right to health for all people rather than lowering the bar to HIV to, to, to what has been the standard response to poor people's causes of, causes of illness. So that is my, you know, my, my general response to that. You know, what I see in the day-to-day -day lives of people with HIV living in South Africa is a continued struggle, a continued struggle to access medicines, a continued struggle with stigma, uh, that what is felt and said about HIV in hallowed meeting halls like this or in Geneva or New York is not the reality of the person who lives with HIV in a community. In fact, there continues to be tremendous ignorance and fear and misunderstanding of HIV. So until we can eradicate that, I would say that there is no basis for relaxing 
the response that we that that we have. The only equity I would demand is that when it comes to issues like mental health or cancer or whatever those other many other causes of death and disease that exist in our part of the world, we need similar mobilizations to present those issues as exceptional issues, as life-threatening issues, and issues on which people have a response, have a right to a, f- a first-world response, for want of a better word. So do, do, just to looking ahead... You said, okay, there's a question about sustainability, a question about allies. Kind of applying that to the challenges ahead, what do you think needs to happen? <laughs> um, I think we need to shake things up. Uh, I think that institutions like the UNAIDS, the United Nations Program on AIDS, needs a big kick. Uh, I think that many of the people who work on HIV need to be taken back to the communities where real people with HIV and people who are vulnerable to HIV live. I think, as uh, was just said just now, that we have to reframe the way that we respond to HIV. I loved what you said about evidence. I don't think that we need to find evidence to justify a human rights response. I think that a human rights response is the right response. It doesn't need evidence to support investment in human rights. I don't think that we need evidence to justify community mobilization because that is about building citizen power. It's about building the social fabrics of our society, which the, the breakup of which creates the risk and the vulnerability to HIV that exists in the first place. To be honest with you, with HIV, as with many other disease threats, I think we need a revolution. And I think that's what makes social movements working on HIV unpopular and unpalatable to certain donors. I don't mean a revolution necessarily as an overthrow of power, but I mean a revolution in the democratization of healthcare services, in the demand for accountability for decisions that are made in relation to health, in the account of in the accountability of politicians for decisions that affect people's vulnerability to diseases, including HIV. Nothing short of a revolution in the way we govern our societies will bring about the eventual end of AIDS. Uh, within 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 Africa or anything else. I'm sorry to say that, but that's as I get <coughs> angrier, as I get older, I get angrier. Sorry. Thanks, Mark. Um, I'm sure that'll raise some questions. I, I, Sonke, can I ask you about something? This is going to be a little bit unfair. Um, you you said we need to slash the statistics and get to the real story. Um, and yet, one of the things that you said along the way was actually the real story is about the statistics on the large number of people without treatment. So, I mean, those kind of actually statistics are still important. Um, I was going to ask you about something that you didn't mention very much and wasn't in the report very much. And I read the report, I skimmed through it, and I may have missed it, but. You know, from the organization I come from, the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, we allocate a lot of funding for treating of children mm-hmm. for pediatric HIV. And you know, despite a long-standing campaign, which we and others have helped to fund, 
there is a much bigger treatment gap for children than there is for adults, yeah. and it's been a persistent problem. And I have to say that I think that by and large, HIV movement has largely failed to address that. And I wonder, you know, this is a, a place where especially young children are not well equipped to engage in protests or movements by themselves. They kind of need to be represented, at least in part, until they get older. And I wonder if you could reflect on that that set of issues for the movement um, and how is there a way we could have done better at helping to represent treatment for children? So I won't um, respond to it frontally. I will say that um, to the extent that we have failed um, around children, I think we've also failed around issues of disability, um, there's a whole host of issues around which we failed, and it sort of speaks to Mark's um, point, which is that part of why HIV offers such an important opportunity for us to talk about power imbalances is precisely because it goes to where AIDS finds the, le- the most vulnerable people in any given society, um, and, it, and, it, and it attaches itself to those people. And so... Um, And so in many ways, that's why I insist that we have this conversation about moving beyond the technical approaches, because the technical approaches may temporarily help us to deal with a certain cohort of children for a certain amount of time. But if we don't change things systemically, and if we don't do that in deep and meaningful ways, then then we won't address it. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this whole Ebola story, because it's, it's it's not, I think it's not by coincidence that Ebola has found itself, um, that ground zero for Ebola is in Liberia, because Liberia is one of the most um, highly indebted countries in the world. It's dependent on aid for 70, 73% of its resources come externally. In, in fact, 73% of Liberia's gross national income comes from outside of Liberia, and it has the largest number of international aid agencies in the world. It has a peacekeeping force of um, close to 10,000 soldiers um, who are maintaining the peace um, since you know the Civil War ended. So it's been fascinating to me to just, again, speak to this failure of response, because I think part of what you're asking is about how civil society has failed itself, because I think we have pointed the finger externally, but there's a real need to look critically internally. And for me, the Liberia one is fascinating um, because you've got all that presence. And so in some ways, you'd think that if Ebola was going to emerge anywhere, it should be Liberia, and it would be stopped by those peacekeepers. The logistical support would be fantastic. You've got all these people who are there. They exist to help. And the fact that they have continued to exist to help and that Liberia has been pretty helpless in the face of Ebola tells us a lot about this industry and the inability for these fat cat organizations that we have all become a part of to help. So hopefully my piece that I've just submitted to New York Times about this issue gets published and more people will hear this argument from my side. But I think it's a real indictment on the industry, as it were. And so I think part of why children don't get taken care of, part of why we miss them out in this report, 
part of why people with disabilities, because the loudest voice gets the most attention, but with people who are marginalized, that attention is very short-lived. Thank you. Thanks very much. And last is the floor. Just a, a quick one for you. Um, you you concluded um, about how to address evidence, and one of the things you said about kind of controlled trials is they 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 can't tell us how to get interventions into place. And uh, I think Trisha Greenhall she's been trying to push that that line about the need to focus on the how. But one of the one of her other recent publications has been to emphasis that actually you need more testing of the how and good examples and what works rather than the what. And that there is a room for rigor on the how. You don't you don't just because you're gonna focus on the how doesn't mean you throw rigor out. Um, and I wondered what your as a methodologist what your response was to that. Yes. Um yeah, absolutely. So one of the jobs of empirical social science can exactly be to look at when it works, how does it work, when it doesn't work, what were all the factors that led to this not working, and that, that's something that um, qualitative studies um, particularly try to look at, to theorize about the processes. Um, but because of the massive number of different influencing factors, I think it's very difficult actually to definitively separate them all out and say, I'm going to test the impact of one of these. And how am I going to test the impact of a supportive political environment on whether community mobilization works or not? You know, because we can't randomly assign communities to this or that condition. And at the same time, there are, when you have a supportive political environment, well, you might have other kinds of supportive gender relations, social um, networks, and so on. So I, so that it, it still is going, we, we can build up an evidence base about what worked here and there, theorize about the different sorts of conditions, but then it takes some, a group of people to figure out how are we going to now then make this intervention in this context work, dealing with the, you know, with the context that we have. An anecdote, I'm going to throw it open so you can, I think we're going to have a microphone. Um, I did a piece of research some years ago on why social movements organize around litigation and looked at does it, is it because you have constitutions that create procedural rights and substantive rights? Is it because you can have social formations, his particular times of histories? The single best predictor we found was does the Ford Foundation have a program in the country? <laughs> <laughs> um, so we. <laughs> no, it wasn't always fair. It was just the single best predictor. Um, so, questions. Let, let's, let's take, is it all right, guys, if we take three at a time and then we'll kind of respond? Okay, so there was one here, please. Hi, thank you very much. Um, that was so interesting. There's so much I could say. I'll try to keep it brief. I started off in clinical medicine. I've been through public health and outbreak management. I'm now in social psychology. We speak louder. <laughs> just, just, just speak right into the microphone, really close to your mouth. Technical <laughs> solutions don't always do it, do they? Okay. <laughs> I've been struggling with some heavy ideas recently. I've got a problem. How do you mobilize people who are concerned to other the problem, to believe it's out there and it's not mine? 
the other problem. Okay, yes, there's one over there in that corner. Actually, let's... Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks um, everybody who spoke, Sisonka, Mark and, and Flora. Um, Christine Stettling from the International Treatment Preparedness Coalition. I agree with everything that you have been said. I wanted to kind of offer a little bit of hope, um, as much as I agree with, with Mark. Um, you know, I think all of us keep on talking about the fact that we need to go back to re-politicizing the struggle. That's where we came from, this is when we were good, this is where we were at our best. I have a feeling that that's already happening, and it's happening with young people. Young people get really, really angry. Their mortality rate is rising. If you go to UNAIDS meetings, young people speak up. They call them out on it. They ask them, what about our treatment access? Why are you missing us out? They come to organizations. Uh, we work with a lot of young people, young, a lot of young activists, and they are there not because they want to be part of a bureaucracy or part of an organization, because they are part of a movement. They really feel the need to engage. I think the other part where, where that political reconnection is going to come from in the AIDS movement is from the next big human rights crisis, which is the IP crisis. I think as much as that got us together in, in the early 2000s, it will get us back together now. Now that more people need second and third line treatment, now that big pharma is playing our game and is, has played all of us against each other, I think again, this is where we will get this repoliticization of the AIDS movement. And maybe if we're lucky or if we're clever, we will be broader and we'll get more people into that movement. But I think there is a little bit of hope. I also think that we need to do some more self-reflection. I haven't read the report. I've only read the one piece um, this morning on, on uh, access to treatment or IP barriers. But I think there is a lot more self-reflection we need to do when we have to call ourselves out. When we, do we buy into that rhetoric about end of AIDS, the, next, the investment framework, whatever the next sexy thing is that people are running after and when do we stand our ground and say we don't care what the next sexy the thing that's going to help our communities is treatment literacy is ip literacy is you know it's all those things that we know work we don't need any big studies to create that evidence we know it works but to call ourselves out when we have become too complacent as a movement and be honest and start fighting each other a little bit more in a, in, in a little bit of an a more authentic or honest way. I think we, we are all we have all kind of played the same game as the UNACs and the WHOs and so on. So I think a little bit creating more space to have more of that self-reflection that maybe this report um, may have started. Thank you. I'm going to take that as a comment. Is that right? Or was there a question? No comment. Okay. Thank you. Well, as as you're there next to the microphone, let's take. Go ahead. And then we'll come back over here. Thank you very much to all the panelists. It's been extremely um, interesting. And, and, you know, from my point of view, I've already seen the journey that you have taken me and all of us, I think, in terms of the relationship between, the relationship between human rights and HIV and where they are. And I think that, although it's been very interesting, I'm still very confused. I've seen, you know, how human rights was at the beginning, at the, 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 center, the central point of the, of the movement that has been created. But I also see how human rights has continuously, you've been referring to HIV, even when you were talking about human rights, as in a way human rights being, you know, has been subsided and uh, been at the, at the service of uh, HIV. Like, you know, we need human rights because we need to be effective. And, but then, uh, you know, Mark said, human rights, you don't really need evidence to defend human rights. You don't really need, uh, you know, to come up with a, 
um, with an explanation as to why you need human rights are there. They have, they're there to be defended. So my question is, when you were talking about we need to repoliticize, and I, I know that the way that you politicized the movement at, at the beginning was about human rights. My question is, obviously you kind of really go back in time. Things have moved on have, and have changed. In this repolitization of the issue, two questions. First, where is human rights in all this? Because we still, we still created a, a, a universe in which human rights are, are at, the, at the service of public health in, in HIV. Is HIV the right place for the social movement that Mark is talking about? The social movement that is about um, inequality and, and uh, lack of resources for, for everybody? Is really, do you, you think, considering where, where the movement has taken us in terms of talking about human rights as a means to an end rather than ends in themselves, is this the right place? Is, is, is HIV the place where you would want to do the revolution? Sorry, I, I'm convinced okay. it is, but you know, <laughs> just trying to Thank get you. provocative. Thanks very much. Let's take one more. How about here, as we haven't had from one to the side? Thank you. That was very interesting, really encouraging. Couldn't agree with you guys more. And just a quick comment um, that this is something, the phenomenon that you're talking about, you know, I call it taking a foot off the pedal sometimes. Um, and um, I think evidence and the academic pursuit of evidence, we've got to be very careful about it because it can also, it can be used against people as a type of uh, exercise of power over. And, and it has been used, not least in this country, I've, I've been at the receiving end of it, where the demand for evidence is used almost as a form of violence uh, by the people who hold the money. And it's also a way of avoiding listening to people living with HIV, actually. And it strikes me that in what you're talking about, the, the move towards human rights, I think you're spot on, the need for a revolution, the way you put it, Mark, or something along those lines or in that direction. We've got to urge the people with power to return to engage with and listen to the voices of people living with HIV in all the messiness, in all the struggle, in all the lack of clarity. And we also need to begin to invest in long-term strategies, and that means academia as well. So we have to start thinking long-term about how we study things over the longer term if we're able then, if we're going to try and attempt to describe what we want to want to make work. Lastly, my question. I've heard no mention of, uh, of church, I think, maybe once, but I've no, it's not featured. And many of you are concerned with that part of the world which is deeply religious. And I wonder where church and faith-based organizations uh, play their part, and are we willing to engage in a language that they understand? Okay, so I suggest we do is have a quick round of thoughts and response to those um, uh, those four interventions, and then we'll take another round before we close. Mark, do you want to go first? <coughs> yeah, they're all big questions, and uh, I find them very, you know, mm. the, the, there's no simple answers to any of the questions. I won't pretend that there's simple answers. These are the things that we need to <coughs> debate. You know, so I'll just quickly make a comment on each one. You know, the question of how do you mobilize people who are concerned with another problem? Denial. 
Ah. To someone else. Okay. Okay, then I misunderstood. No, I misunderstood your question because what? Well, I'll, I'll answer the question. <laughs> well, I mean, what I was going to say is that I, I think with HIV, one of the things that we did manage to overcome was people's sense that this is another person's problem, and to build a notion, to build a bridge to people based upon empathy and common understanding. So if you take this T-shirt, for example, you know, when we started to produce this T-shirt in South Africa, it had a dramatic effect on people, how people understood the epidemic. For people living with HIV, it was a challenge to be open about having HIV. For people who didn't have HIV, putting on this T-shirt made you understand what it was like to feel stigma, what it was like to sit in an aeroplane and somebody tries to move <laughs> away from you, and what it was like to say, I don't have HIV, you know, and then you say, why do I want to say to that person I don't have, ha have HIV? So, the, you know, there ha have to be a range of, of, of strategies to cross that particular, particular bridge. But, I, you know, I think the, one of the big challenges that we face in the world today is how to make people think that problems that are not their problems in the modern world are all of our problems. And that all of these social problems that are starting to well up around our society, even if you think that you can insulate them because of the class that you come from or the privilege that you come from, are going to overwhelm you sooner or later. And therefore, solidarity with the poor, solidarity with the marginalized is absolutely essential in the, in, in, in the modern world in which we, which we live. So that's, I'm sorry about a bad answer to a misunderstood question, but let me leave on, on, on that. You know, on the point about, about human rights, um, I, I think we've made a lot of progress with regards to the so-called human rights approach. But my argument is that it, there shouldn't be a human rights approach because it suggests when you're dealing with HIV that there can be a non-human rights approach. My argument is that respect for human rights is central to human dignity and therefore has to be integral to a response. And I think that that was what we succeeded. But UNAIDS twisted that. And not just UNAIDS, I won't just blame UNAIDS, but they turned it into this notion of the human rights approach. And then because you had the human rights approach, you had to start to be able to demonstrate that the human rights, to show evidence that the human rights approach worked. I don't think that you need to be able to provide evidence. I think that people have a right to dignity, people have a right to equality, people have a right of access to healthcare services, and we should strive for those rights. I believe that if you get those rights, it stands to reason that people with more autonomy, people with more choice, people with more reproductive power, will be better protected from, from, from HIV. Prove me wrong. But having said that we made progress on human rights, I think that we also made a lack of progress in certain fundamental areas. So we all got very excited because we create, created a plethora of laws and a protective, so-called protective legal environment. But in countries where people don't have access to justice, it doesn't matter that you have good laws and protective legal frameworks up there if you can't access a lawyer or if you can't access a court or if the criminal justice system won't protect you from rape. 
So dealing with human rights in relation to HIV becomes about dealing with questions of access to justice. Latterly, I've also come to understand, and it's a pity it takes so long to wake up to some of these things, that the right to education, to basic education, is absolutely central to the right to health and absolutely central to the way we deal with HIV. I'm dealing with an issue in South Africa at the moment of a little six-year-old boy who drowned in a toilet, who drowned in, fell into a toilet and drowned in the shit. Now, the question you have to I'd put out to you is what is the connection between that and HIV? What's the rights connection? What's the response connection? As far as I'm concerned, there's, there's, a, there's an issue, which is why we have to try to forge the links between these, the, 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 these social issues. The last thing I'd say, and I won't labor on this, I, I haven't tried to present a pessimistic view. I'm trying to present a realistic view. And I know you'd agree with this, Christine. I don't think we can replay the 2000s uh, in the way that we responded to HIV uh, as we try to repoliticize the movement. We have to learn the lessons, the strengths, and the weaknesses, the failures, and do the next phase of the HIV epidemic in a, in, a, in, in a quite different way if we're to get out of the space we found ourselves in at the moment. Okay, Sorry. I'll be quick. I think I'll just answer two questions. I think the church one is an interesting one. You know, the church is interesting because especially in the early days when everyone could see the fallout and how many people were dying and how many people were sick, you know, the church let us activists do a lot of stuff. And they said, you've got your bit. You can talk about condoms. I'm not, I can't talk about it. Here are my people. They are available. <laughs> they will listen. I will not say it, right? So I think that kind of real disaggregation of responsibilities happened at community level. And those of us who sort of live and deal in reality didn't fight people who were opening a door for us to say the things that they could not say. And I think having a fight to try and get people to say things that they're never going to say is not strategic, uh, and it doesn't leverage on your strength. So I think, um, at the same time, I'm loving this pope. I'm loving the pope. So I think there's a real opening, and there's some exciting stuff that could happen, um, particularly because I think the Catholic Church has very much been in decline, and we've seen certainly now a part of the world, the rise of these evangelical churches, and I mean no disrespect to people who um, belong to those churches, but certainly the role that um, American-funded um, um, churches have played in, in, um, in our continent is not good when it comes to HIV, and they are seriously funded, and I think we haven't had enough of a discussion about the ways in which PEPFAR continues to this day, even under President Obama, poor guy, but that's another story. The extent to which PEPFAR to this day continues to, to fund a lot of faith-based organizations. Um, it continues to be a, a slush fund for a lot of those types of organizations that aren't doing the right thing in our context. So I'll leave it at that. And then the second question I'll answer is Christine's because I think you make an interesting point about new pulse points and new energy. And, you know, Frederick Douglass, um, you know, uh, slave activist, um, you know, 200 years ago told us power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. So what fuels social activism is anger. And, uh, you know, we all want to have, like, you know, la-di-da and, you know, feel wonderful and that negative emotions are not allowed. But, frankly, anger fuels social activism. And there's a lot to be angry about in terms of intellectual property, a huge amount to be angry with, as you say, as people come on to second and third line um, treatments where the 
the, the prices are up here, and Pauline does a wonderful job in this report of breaking down what is typically a very technical area, so I think that's absolutely right. Um, and there are a few other areas that are emerging as real areas of the disparity. I think the new thing, um, rights continue to be important, but people are very, very angry in our part of the world about governance, about corruption. Stealing money makes people angry. And so I think making those arguments, um, Asia Russell does an excellent job in this report about talking about where activists didn't catch the points where we were getting outmaneuvered by donors, the language about country ownership, the language about technical solutions, all of this stuff. We went along. We were like, yes, country ownership. And we, we were a, a number was done on us, and we weren't smart enough. So I think the lesson is be smarter next time and be quicker to question and challenge those things in real time as they're happening. Okay, I'll just say, um, I think we've covered a lot. I'll just say a brief um, response also to um, Christine's uh, point about the, um, the, the sense of a movement and, and um, activism. And um, it's, about, it's also about the, the exceptionalism. So for there to be that kind of energy and politicization and commitment, people need something to rally around. And here, you know, I mean, when... When the treatment action campaign started, it was something that people in South Africa and in the UK and around the world could, they could easily see that sort of the, the point. You know, people are dying of AIDS in South Africa. They can get access to treatment in the UK or USA. You know, something is obviously wrong. And globally, people, you know, it was kind of easy for people to sort of get it somehow. Um, let's not say, I'm not saying it's easy, but no. it, you know, sort of has a resonance. Um, and that, so, and maybe, and so that we need to find the, the things that people, you know, that, that people can rally around. And intellectual property is still absolutely probably one of those. Um, but it might also be a case for connecting with wider social movements um, and what what is mobilising young people um, at the moment, even if it's not specifically mm -hmm. HIV/AIDS. Yeah. Thank you. So I um, I lied earlier. I promised you a second round of questions. Um, sorry about that. Um, and I know there are there were a lot of hands and a lot of people very interested uh, to answer more, ask more. But we have run out of time, and I've got a very stern stop right in front of me. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm going to draw it to a close here. But I'd like to offer each panelist kind of one sentence takeaway: um, optimism or pessimism or reflection. What what's the one sentence you'd like to leave? With this audience tonight, and then we will we will close. Um, who'd like to go first? Okay, so my one sentence, and I'll sort of speak to the academics. And my one sentence is not to get caught into providing easy answers about evidence, but stick to the science, which and, and you know be true about its its complexity and contradictions. Great, thank you. Yeah, I, I'll echo that. I, you know, at the beginning of the Iraq War, George Bush said, "You're either with us or you're against us," and and I would suggest that um, anything that is that uncomplicated probably needs further review, and that if it's if it's uncomplicated, <laughs> if it's um, complicated, doesn't mean that you should be depressed. It just means you have to press on. Mark, do you want to take the invitation? Or do you rather skip it? <laughs> Because all I want to say is that I think that we've moved mountains in the response to HIV. Uh, 
But I think that we are halfway across. And I think there's no guarantee that the gains that we've made up to now cannot be reversed in the years that lie before us. And preventing those reversals is something that doesn't sit with the people on this panel, but sits with everybody uh, in this room and finding answers to what are the many very real challenges that we face now is a challenge for each one of us and not just for the so-called activist leaders. I think what brings that to my mind is the uh, Antonio Gramsci adage of maintaining pessimism of the intellect but optimism of the will. And I think in the fine tradition of the London School of Economics, this has been a place where people have been talking seriously about making a difference in the world but being rigorous and thoughtful and analytical and critical about it. And we've been very well served by our panel this evening, and I hope you'll join me in thanking them for some terrific presentations. <laughs>